Today's reading is from John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That's good to see you all here. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Clint Estes. I'm the associate pastor of Discipleship. Uh, here at New Life Dresher, and yesterday I was doing some painting in my house, <clears throat> and I had a wonderful little helper with me, my youngest son, who's not quite two, and he really wants to be involved, and so there I was, and I had my roller, and I had the can of paint open on the ground, uh, on the floor, and near that was the lid, sitting on the floor open. And he is running around and stomping around. And before long, right in the lid of paint goes his foot. And it just, it smears all over his foot. And of course, he doesn't leave his foot there. He lifts it up and he puts it down right on the floor next to him. And there is this thick splotch of white paint all over the floor. And... Uh, yeah, he, he just wanted to help paint. That's all he wanted to do. But um, I didn't say, great, run around. What I said was, no, hold on. Stay right there. Don't move, right? And then I pick him up, and I remove him from the room, and I put him in the bathtub, and I wash his feet off. Similarly, you might not have somebody who's a two-year-old helping you paint your house, but you might know a similar um, Experience if you work outside in your yard and you're doing garden work or lawnmower work or whatever and your shoes get filthy when you're out there. Maybe it's especially if it's raining, you stepped in mud or something like that and you want to come inside and wash your hands or get lunch or something and you stop at your door because what you don't want to do is drag that mud in all through the house everywhere you go. And instead you want to take your shoes off and then you can enter, enter 
the house. The Bible teaches us that sin is like dirt, but it's not dirt on our skin, feet, hands. It's dirt on our souls. And Jesus must wash us clean of that dirt on our souls before we can enter our Father's house in heaven. That's some of what we're going to look at this morning in John 13. But can you bow your heads one more time and pray with me before we do? Heavenly Father, I, I really desire um, for you and your Son and his work to be exalted in our midst. Your Spirit needs to work that in our hearts, so I'm praying that you would. I'm praying that you would keep me and my eyes focused on my Savior. And for each one of us in this room, I'm praying you would be our focus. I'm asking you that we would hear your voice, that you would give us hearts that are soft to accept it and believe it. I'm praying we would walk out of this room loving Christ more, adoring him more, um, and, and ready to follow him. I pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> The, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John is what is often spoken of as Jesus' public ministry, where he would walk around publicly and uh, show he, who he was and, and teach and whatnot. Here is God the Son, who from all eternity past has been with the Father in heaven, who through him were all things made. And here he is now in the Gospel of John sent on a mission by his Father. He's entering a hostile world as light coming into darkness, and his mission is to rescue those who are his own. And over the last 12 chapters in the Gospel of John, he's been out in the world, revealing himself more and more to different people, using signs to teach them about who he is and what he came to do. So remember, he appeared to Nicodemus and the other religious leaders, and he taught them. The Samaritan woman at the well, he healed a blind man and showed who he was to him. In the belly-hungry crowds of Galilee, where he fed the 5,000, he was showing who he was to them, along with the Jews in Jerusalem who were so offended by what he claimed and what he did there. But now in our chapter, in chapter 13, and it'll be the case for 13 through 17, he is turning outside of the world and turning to his disciples. And the whole tone of the ship, the whole tone of the book shifts at at this point. He is coming now to his own. Do you see that in verse 1? When Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own. It's a term of affection. Think how a soldier out fighting in a foreign war might write back to his family and his kids and write, yours, so-and-so. But more than just a term of affection, there's something deeper to it. Do you remember back in chapter 1, John had written this? He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is speaking of the Jewish people, Israel, who for thousands of years, God had patiently protected them and prepared them for the coming of the Messiah. Mostly, these very people rejected Jesus. That's what chapters 1 through 12 showed us over and over and over again. But a small band of them received him, welcomed him, followed him, called him their Lord. Now, it's not all of Israel and all the Jewish people. Now, 
It is this little group of 12 whom Jesus calls his own. Now these are the ones who belong to him. These are his flock, his special people, his treasure. These are the ones he loves. These are his own. And you, if you've received Jesus, he calls you his own as well. He says, having loved them who were in the world, in verse 1, he loved them to the end. That phrase, to the end, like so much else in John, could have two meanings. Maybe it means he loved them to the uttermost. So as some people have put it, now he showed how utterly he loved them. Think of how, um, well, I'll move on to that. So maybe it's depth. Maybe it shows there's such deep love to the end that he loved them. Maybe it means to show the duration of time. To the very last breath of his life, Jesus loved them every second to the very end. Maybe it's both. John loves to use words that have two meanings to kind of pull both out. Certainly the cross covers both, doesn't it? Depth. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And it was on the cross to his dying breath that Jesus Christ loved his people by giving his life for them. Love, we'll see over the next coming weeks and months, saturates these chapters in a way that it didn't in chapters 1 through 12 as he comes to his own people. There is, of course, one here in this room who is not his own. A devil is hidden in the room. And I'm not just talking about Judas. There is the most stark contrast of dark and light that you could possibly find anywhere in the universe here, concentrated in this little space. The devil himself is there, lurking. The most twisted concentration of evil, seething hatred towards Jesus and all that he is. And then there is, of course, our Lord himself, the light of the world. He knows everything, including the betrayal and the cross, which is about to come And yet he is, in these chapters, radiating love and peace. The Father has given all things into Jesus' hands. Divine authority. The kind of authority that Russia or the U.S. or other world leaders can't even dream of. Jesus knows that he's come from the Father. His mission and origin are both divine. He is here for a purpose. Jesus knows he's about to leave this world and return to the Father, and so his disciples are going to be on their own in this world. And all these things he knows, which might cause us, if we knew them about ourselves, to puff up or be self-centered, these things actually cause him to take the posture of a humble servant. It's evening. We are in a large room, uh, a large house. We're in the upper room of it in Jerusalem. The disciples are lying on their sides, leaning up on one of their arms on thin mats on the ground. They're around the table, and their feet are radiating out from the table. They're about to eat the Passover meal. And they're unaware, but it is Jesus' last few hours with them before he dies. They don't know it now, but everything Jesus does and says here in this chapter is in the shadow of the cross. And after Jesus rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and pours out his Holy Spirit on them, then they will realize that everything Jesus does in this chapter here is colored by, is given meaning by his death for them on the cross. So what does Jesus want them to know with his last few hours on earth? First, Jesus taught them that he came to serve. 
washing feet before the meal was normal. But here, nobody's making a move. They're all sitting around. Maybe they're all wondering, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? I'm not going to do it. I'm too proud. Nobody's moving. In the room there is the water pitcher and basin, maybe just sitting in the corner, sitting there. Finally, after what is perhaps an awkward tension in the room, Jesus himself rises up. All the more striking, considering that we read in other, chapter, in other Gospels that this night, the disciples had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them. And we see a play-by-play in the next couple of verses. Uh, look at verses 4 and forward. If this were made into a movie, I imagine it would be a series of a bunch of different shots showing every movement, every detail, every sound would probably be turned up so you could hear everything very well. We read, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his garment, stripped down possibly just to loincloths at this point. He picks up a towel and takes it, a long linen cloth. He ties it around himself. He grabs the water. He pours it into a basin. And then we read that he kneels. He takes the stinking, soiled feet of his disciples. He washes them clean, and he wipes them dry with a towel. Taking the very same position that Mary did, Earlier in chapter 12, do you remember when she poured ointment over Jesus' feet and washed it, wiped it with her hair? And it's an interesting contrast again with Jesus and the devil here. In verse uh, 2, when the devil, when it says that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas, the language John uses is the devil poured it into the heart of Judas. The devil pours into the heart of Judas to betray And in contrast to that, we see Jesus Christ taking and pouring water into a basin in order to wash feet out of love. It's not hard for us to imagine. The disciples are probably stunned. Nobody says a word, perhaps. Nobody knows what to say. You can almost hear the uncomfortable shifting around as they feel uneasy with Jesus doing this. You can hear the dripping of the water in the basin as Jesus takes a foot and rubs it, and then the ruffle and the scruffing of the towel on the foot as he dries them clean. The significance of what Jesus is doing is not lost on the twelve. Here is the master, the lord of the feast, acting like a servant. Something that peers don't do for one another. In fact, he's not just acting like a mere servant. This washing of feet was the most menial, the meanest of jobs that you could ask for. Some uh, Jewish homes would not even ask a Jewish servant to do this task. They would leave it for Gentile servants to do because it was just too low for a Jewish servant. The exalted one is becoming lowly. He is the life of men. He is the giver of sight, the giver of health, He made every one of us in this room. Archangels cover their eyes before him. Mighty and holy beings in heaven literally worship him day and night. All things have been given to him. There is no blade of grass that crops up without his will. Unless this man desires it, this God, there is no missile fired, no tank rolls out, no bill is passed, vote cast, word uttered, hair falls from your head, All of creation, the millennia of human history, past, present, and whatever will come to future, is all for this being's glory. And here we look into the window of an upper room in Jerusalem, and we see him clothed in the flesh of a 30-some-year-old human body and soul, 
humbling himself before sinners whom he created as their servant. It'd be like if we were to be invited to the White House for a supper, and then after dinner, you see the president put on gloves and go to the toilets and scrub the toilets after everybody else. It's just not right. It's hard not to think about Philippians. Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This scandalous act of lowliness in washing the disciples' feet is, in this particular sense, a picture of the cross. It is an act in which Jesus Christ is making himself as low as you could possibly go and imagine. And we even see a little shadow of that in some of the language John uses. He talks about laying aside his garment. You remember that? And John decided to use the same word that Jesus used back in John chapter 10 when he was talking about the good shepherd. Listen to what Jesus said here. I am the good shepherd. Do you remember this? I know my own. That takes on some significance now, doesn't it? I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The same word as Jesus described as laying aside his garment, the same garments that would be stripped from him and divided up among Roman soldiers. If the twelve were stunned at this foot washing, it would be nothing compared to the shock of the cross that they would have seen just a few hours later. Such a lowly act. Christian, behold your God. Look at him. On knees, bent over, rubbing the dirt off the feet of arrogant, boastful, proud, self-centered followers, and he would be stripped down again. His garment would be laid aside again. He would not just go on his knees. He would be laid on his back. Nails would be driven to his hands and his feet, and he would be lifted up on a cross in shame for all the world to see, and he would stoop down again, this time not just to the floor, but down into the arms of death itself, and he would be laid on a stone-cold tomb in a black-as-night grave. And he didn't just do it for his disciples here. He did it for you. He did it because he loves you. I have no application here other than to say this. This is the God who made you and who saves you. The God who says to give up every comfort and every ambition in this life for him. God who who says to put him at the absolute center of your life and to live every day for him and for his kingdom, not for you and your kingdom. If this is the God who requires that of us, do you think he demands it because he is unreasonable, greedy, a killjoy? Do you not think he requires it of you because he loves you? And will you not gladly follow him because you love him? for what he's done for you.
Jesus came to serve you. That's the first thing. But foot washing is not just about an act of service. The second thing that Jesus intends to teach his followers here is that he came to wash them. Christian, he came to wash you. That's what he did. Foot washing here is more than just a symbol of humility, though it's certainly that. It is an act, of course, of cleansing. You wipe dirt off feet. And here's where Peter gets his first objection in, in verse 8. Into maybe the silence. We don't read of anybody else speaking up. But when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter goes, he blurts out emphatically, you shall never wash my feet. He's strong in the way he speaks. And why does Jesus respond? Look at verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter's thinking the surface level here, the social no-no of this act. But Jesus responds on the deeper level. Washing his feet, washing their feet, Jesus is saying, is a picture of Jesus scrubbing their hearts clean of sin. Which leads us to this, that we may be intrigued by Jesus. We may even admire Jesus. But if we want to have a share with Jesus, if we want to take part in his eternal life, in his resurrection life, in the glory that he had before the world began, if we want a room in his father's house, then we must let him wash us clean of our sin. We must come on Jesus' own terms. Peter wanted Jesus on his terms. Jesus, you can't do that. Do we ever do this in our hearts? Jesus, I want your salvation. I want your life. I want your good morals. Whatever it is. But don't give me this, this dying on the cross thing. The weakness of that. Don't teach that I'm a filthy sinner and need to be washed. But if you want to share in Christ, Jesus must wash you. Think about that for a minute. And it's not something you can do yourself. Jesus' blood on the cross is like water that cleans your soul of sin. Once you are cleaned, then you can enter into his Father's house in heaven. That's how it is. Peter doesn't fully understand. You can tell. He won't understand the real significance of what Jesus is saying until after the cross and after the Spirit's been given to him. But he gets it just enough to know that he wants to do whatever it takes to have a part in Jesus. I love that about Peter. And so he raises his second objection. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, hands, and my head. It's classic Peter. He always lives in the extremes. One moment, he's walking on water, and the other minute, he's sinking and saying, Jesus, help me save my life. One minute, he is confessing Jesus as the Christ, and the other minute, he has the gall to rebuke Jesus, and sees Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. One minute, he says, Jesus, even if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. And the other moment, he's saying, I don't even know the man. I don't know who he is. And here, too, one moment, he says, you will never wash my feet. And then, of course, in the next moment, he goes, wash all of me. I need it all. And Jesus uses this to teach us another lesson here. You are already washed, Peter, is what he says. Uh, Is what he says in verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But he's completely clean. And you are clean. 
Peter, your sins are forgiven. You are clean inside because of what I will do on the cross. Do you need to hear that this morning? Sometimes we forget this. And when we see or feel our sin, we then go into praying the sinner's prayer a million times over every night because we don't know if it's stuck. Or we feel like you need to confess your sins, every single sin, at the end of every single day, and if you miss one, then it's going to be the thing that bars you from getting into heaven. Or you blew it again and you just feel like you need to be replunged into the fountain of Jesus Christ's blood. You need to be rewashed. You need to recommit your faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever it looks like, the bottom line is that so often we are not convinced that no matter what, we are spotless inside. You think you need a whole new re-scrubbing. And that'll come out in all sorts of ways, in, in the way we pray. In our anxiety, maybe in the way that we're too afraid to go to God after we sin. Or we feel like we need to do penance after we sin in order to make up for our sin. But Jesus is teaching here, his shed blood on the cross cleans you of every one of your sins. Past, present, and future. Every one of them is already accounted for. Already washed away. You don't need to be cleaned again. Sometimes when we sin, in an, uh, well, we commit a sin again. Maybe it's in a new way, maybe it's not in a new way. But uh, we don't know the future of our lives, and so we don't know all the ways in which we're going to blow it. And so you blow it, and you just feel awful. And we forget that Jesus knew that when he died on the cross. Here, Jesus washing away the dirt of our sin, he knew every sin of yours that he was going to be washing away. And we don't. And so when we fail again, we feel like, Jesus, oh, like, you need to scrub that one away too. You need to re-scrub it away. Maybe one thing that this would encourage us to do is, instead of when we sin and, and mess up again, instead of feeling like, well, there's one that Jesus hadn't gotten yet, and so he needs to wash it away, and I need to reconfess my life to Christ and, and pray that he'll give me salvation again. Um, instead of doing that, Maybe let it, let it drive us to be remembering, wow, Jesus Christ knew how low he was going when he died on the cross. He knew how filthy I was. I'm just, getting, I'm just being shown it more and more. And let it um, expand your amazement for Jesus Christ's love for you and the act of humility that his death on the cross really was for you. I hope you know Jesus has washed you, Christian, totally on the cross. You are clean. You will never be unclean. There's so much peace and freedom and joy in this. And instead, Jesus says, we only need our feet to be washed. The one who's clean, his bathes, does not need to wash except for his feet. But he is completely clean. So if I give my kids a bath at night, and I scrub them down and get their hair all shampooed and wipe away all the dirt and get behind their ears really well and everything like that. And then they get out of the bathtub and they run around outside for a couple of minutes before coming to bed. They come back in. Their feet are dirty. I don't want them to get all their dirt in their sheets. What do I do? I don't plunge them in the bathtub again. I set them on the edge of the tub. I pull their feet up underneath the faucet and I scrub their feet clean. It's the same with us in our sins a little bit like that. 
God still wants us to confess our sins to him. He still wants us to ask forgiveness, even to those who are already saved. But we never do it as a criminal who is on the edge of our seat, really hoping that the judge is going to give us the declaration of innocence. Instead, we do it as children who just need to have their feet scrubbed, as people who always want to be bringing our sins out into the light and get rid of them ourselves, as children who want to keep short accounts with their father who we know loves them and never want to let our sin get between us. That's, I think, what Jesus is is getting at here. We've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. That will never need to be repeated in your life. And yet, every day we go about our lives, and I sin this way, and I sin in that way, and we splash our sin all over one another, and we're reminded that we're sinful people. And at the end of the day, we don't need to be saved again. We bring our sins to our Father and say, Father, would you scrub them, my feet clean? I know I'm a sinner before you. I don't want to keep this between you and me. Would you forgive me for this? It's why it is good to spend time confessing our sins to God. And we do daily, because every day you walk on the streets and your feet get dirty, right? It's also why we confess our sins as a people every week at church. But remember, we don't do that hoping that we might be forgiven. We confess our sins because we already have been forgiven. Yes, come and get your feet rinsed but never forget you are already completely clean. That's what Jesus Christ really wants us to know. Something else to bring out here that, that Christ um, shows us is uh, that you are not all clean, he says. Not all who are washed externally are clean internally. That's why he says in verse 10, you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. Judas, of course. Which is amazing, because Judas had his feet washed by Jesus Christ. To the other disciples, he was just as clean as they were. But inwardly, he was still dirty. And it happens today, too. There's a danger in thinking that an external act or an external thing can uh, cause internal cleansing of our souls. But water can't wash away sin. There's no Dawn soap that's strong enough to get it clean. No good works, no urgent prayers on your knees can do it. No tears you shed over your sins can wash them clean. No membership classes or mere vows saying the words outwardly do it. Baptism itself, the sprinkling of water on you, won't wash away your sin. Only something as potent as the blood of the Eternal One by whom all things were made and who was sent by the Father can purge the stain of your sin from you. So I urge you... Don't deceive yourself by relying on any of those other things just because you've done it. Instead, trust only in Jesus Christ alone to wash you clean and his blood on the cross for you. Well, with um, the last couple of minutes we have, uh, let's look at the last paragraph of our text, 12 through 17. I won't be quite as thorough here, but it's important. Jesus takes what he did, and then he gives a lesson for the disciples. He says... You must serve one another as I have served you. Christian, you must serve one another as Jesus Christ served you. And he talks talks about going from the greater to the lesser. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. See in verse um, 12, 13, you call me teacher and Lord. You're right, I am. But if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, then you also do that for one another. I've given you an example. Okay? 
if it's not too lowly a task for our Lord and teacher, it is not too lowly for us to do either. Uh, think of the arrogance uh, of, of this situation. Uh, suppose that there is a CEO of some multi-billion dollar company. And I don't know why this CEO would ever be doing this, but for some reason he has a habit of being the one to empty out the trash cans at the end of the day. I know, we're making this up, but here we go. <clears throat> suppose one day he asks the summer intern who is there if the summer intern would help him take out the trash. And the summer intern goes, are you kidding me? I came here to, to build up my resume. I came here how to learn how to do this and this and this and this. I've, that's too low for me. Are you serious? Think of the, the arrogance and, and how ridiculous that is. Well, the examples Jesus gives aren't that. He gives the example of somebody who is a master versus somebody who is a servant. Somebody who is a sending, somebody who's sending out versus those who are sent out. And he'll flesh out those more later. But he's saying, if I've done this, you must do this. Uh, that shows itself in actions. Jesus, you're saying that you want me to give of my precious free Saturday hours to help a widow or a handicapped person mow their lawn or clean their house or whatever? You're saying, Christ, you want me to spend my lunch hour on the phone encouraging a brother or sister who is, who's depressed. Yeah. You want me to visit those who are in the hospital. Yeah. If you're a young child here, maybe it looks something like letting your sibling choose the movie for that night instead of yourself. Or letting them have the biggest cookie or the one with the most chocolate chips. I don't know. Something like that. If you're a husband or a wife, maybe it looks like telling your spouse, let me do the dishes tonight. You sit down and relax and read a book. Or let me take the kids out for a few hours and you get some time to yourself. I don't know. Some of you are so good at this. I do want to say that. Some of you, I'm blown away how much you pour your lives out for other people. I hope you're encouraged by that. But Jesus is talking about more than just actions. It's not just, let me do my one servant act for the week. I'm done. I can wait till next week. I've gotten it over with. He's talking about an attitude or demeanor for all of your life, that we would be people who say to one another, I am your servant. That's who I am. Okay, your identity is that of a servant, always. This may be especially difficult for those in our midst who are leaders. Maybe you're high up in your job. Maybe you are a leader of this church, elders, pastors. This is for us. Maybe you are especially gifted. You're used to having people report to you. You know that your time is valuable. But maybe it's especially important then for us to hear it. There's no exceptions to this. We need to be people who are servants. And we need to serve one another. Here, did you notice Jesus says, serve one another? He's speaking about other Christians here. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about loving people who are outside of the church. But here, he's focusing on those who are inside the church. Think about this for a second. We might all line up to wash Jesus' feet. I think if Jesus Christ were here in the flesh, in our midst, we might all gladly make a row and wait for hours if we had the privilege of bending down and washing our Savior's feet. But, wash the feet of the person next to me? No thank you. They're hard to be around. Jesus, haven't you noticed that? Maybe they always talk about themselves. They look bad. They smell bad. Whatever it is. Their lives are messy. Their political views disgust me. I don't have respect for them because of it. 
I don't even know them. Whatever it is. Yet, when you think about it that way, I urge you to compare your own sin and dirtiness and ugliness with that of the perfect, spotless Savior, Jesus Christ. And he washed our feet. And that includes others who don't treat you well. This is not, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. Jesus Christ washed Judas's feet, who would betray him and have him put to death. And it's beautiful, though. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that when you serve one another, you are serving Jesus Christ. When we appear before him on the last day, he will say, you did this for me. When you did that for that person, this for that person, this for that person, you were doing it to me. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear that? So last, let me end them by just saying, uh, point out what Jesus says in verse 17. I've given, nope, that's 15, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Um, Brothers and sisters, we can look in wonder at this God all we want. We can be awestruck by his humility. We can be hit in the chest by his love. We can be watery in the eyes. But unless you plant your foot in his footprints, unless you place your knee on the ground where he placed his to wash one another's feet, and unless we actually start scrubbing, you will not know the blessedness of this Savior. We'll fail at times. Yeah, we will. But as we grow in conforming our lives to his likeness and to this pattern, we'll actually also grow in the joy of our Savior, who reminds you today, I'll end, who reminds you today that no matter how often you fail, he has washed us by his blood. And because of that, you are spotless on the inside. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to pray for those of us in this room who who are relying on external actions, that you would convict them of that and give them faith in Christ to be plunged in the fountain of Jesus' blood and to be clean. I pray for any of us in this room who, who like Peter, um, want you but on our own terms. Would you help us and meet us there and, and show us that we need to have you scrub us clean? And would you give us what we need to actually plunge ourselves in that fountain? For those of us who, God, struggle with feeling the guilt and weight of our sin and and we just feel like we always need to be resaved over and over and over again, I'm praying that you would comfort those of my brothers and sisters in this room who feel that way. Would you assure them of the fact that they are clean and they never, ever need to be rewashed again? And would you also grow us in our quickness to bring our sins before you each day, lay them at your feet, um, yeah, and give us by your spirit a love and a joy in serving one another and in serving you in this way. I pray in our Savior's name, amen.